hard to stay seated when you're singing about a risen Savior, isn't it? It's a great song. Thank you for helping prepare our hearts for the Word of God. And you know, it won't be too long until we'll celebrate that resurrection Sunday, just a few weeks uh, from now, and I uh, hope you are inviting and encouraging others to be here. It's one of the high days, of course, of our year, every year, and uh, I look forward to it. I know you do. We've got special things planned. There's some special music, song, Palm Sunday, choir and orchestra. Then on Good Friday evening, our contemporary worship team will be leading us in a contemporary uh, worship experience. And then on Good Friday, we'll have two luncheons this year. Uh, and you'll see information about that or stop by the Welcome Center desk and you can pick up uh, uh, information about all those things. But it is, it's just one of the highlights and it should be because we, we don't uh, serve a dead God. He is alive and because he's alive, we live. And so uh, I hope you're planning for a great Easter celebration. By the way, next week, next Sunday, I'm excited to tell you that we'll be presenting a young man to you, a young man and his wife, uh, to become our new high school pastor. Uh, we've been looking for a little over a year for that uh, uh, position, and uh, we are pleased uh, to tell you that we'll be presenting he and his wife so you can meet them, see them next Sunday morning. They're excited. We're excited. It's a long story. We interviewed a number of uh, candidates, but uh, the Lord uh, brought us, we believe, the right uh, young man and his wife. You're going to be excited, too when I introduce them uh, to you uh, next uh, Sunday morning, but uh, be praying for them. They're informing their church today, and uh, then they'll be with us next uh, Sunday, and then begin their ministry on uh, Easter Sunday, perfect Sunday, to begin their ministry with us. If you'll take your Bibles, open up to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll read our text there in just a moment. You see the title already, and by the way, this is part of our series, God's Up to Something Big. If you've noticed over the past several months, most of my messages have come from the book of 1 Samuel in this series, and that's because the book of 1 Samuel is all about the big things that God was doing. God was doing some new things in Israel, some things he had never done before, and that's why this series is based mostly out of 1 Samuel. And today I want us to look at 1 Samuel 17. You know, this is one of my favorite times of the year. Uh, being a basketball junkie, I love this time of year, March Madness. And it is referred to March Madness because... Uh, Every year, uh, there will be basketball teams that are supposed to win that don't win. There will be teams that supposedly have no chance that upset, uh, you might say, some giants. And uh, you'll see teams of lesser talent, lesser skill, defeat teams that uh, should never lose, but they do. There will be some Davids and some Goliaths. There will be some Davids that will take those Goliaths down. There will be some, some little dogs or underdogs that beat the big dogs and that will create a storyline that some will always remember and be inspired by. There are going to be buzzer-beating shots. There always are. There will be no-name players who will emerge out of basketball obscurity and step up and play the game of their lives. Well, if you get that and you understand a little bit of that, then you understand a little bit of the story that we're going to look at today. We're going to break into the middle of it when we read our text in just a moment but I bet you know this story pretty well, David and Goliath. Just about everybody is some, on some level is aware of David and Goliath. It's an against um, all odds kind of, of story where a teenage boy will defeat a seasoned giant, a soldier, and he will in so doing deliver Israel from certain bondage and captivity and emerge as a hero bringing glory to God and sending a message to the entire world. With that in mind, if you're physically able to do so, I want to invite you to stand as we read, as I say, break into this story. In uh, verse 28, I'll come back and kind of give you a little bit of the uh, additional background here in just a moment. Verse 28 says this, Now Eliab, his eldest brother, that's David's eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him, that is Eliab, his brother, toward another, and he spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him, that is, Saul sent for David, and David said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail him because of fear. 
your servant who will, will go and fight with this uh, Philistine. And Saul said to David, well, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a, lamb, a lion or a bear and took a, a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now, Father, would you be with us this morning as we uh, look again at this story, amazing story, Father, and so many lessons so helpful to us, God, as we think about the giants in our lives, the giants that we face. We thank you, Father, for David, his courage, his faith, Father, his obedience to you, and uh, subsequently, God, what his life and story teach us about facing our own giants. And I know, Father, there are many who are listening to me today that are in this live audience, live stream, television, radio, and they're facing some giants right now. And I pray, God, that you'll use your word to encourage them, to bring help and hope to them. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, again, I, I feel certain that you know a good part of this story, if not all of it, but uh, uh, it is one of the great stories uh, of the Scripture. David, this teenage boy, who has been a shepherd. That's all he's been. He hasn't been an, uh, a soldier, and he goes to the battlefront. He goes to the battlefront. The Philistines had challenged Israel, and you know Goliath, what Goliath had done. Go Goliath had said to, to uh, Israel, he would come out and taunt them every morning, and say, hey, just send somebody out. Let's just settle this man-to-man, mano-a-mano. Let's set it that way. And so if you'll just um, send your best soldier out to me, he and I will fight, whoever wins. The other um, uh, whoever wins will become, their nation will become the, the dominating nation. And this was so intimidating for uh, Israel. And these were pretty good soldiers by this time. Saul was a good soldier, and Israel had become pretty, a pretty solid uh, army. And so, um, but yet uh, Goliath has so intimidated them, it says they would all fall back. They would all run back. And he would do this every day. Are you going to send somebody to me? Are you going to send somebody out to me? Well, David shows up. Now, when David shows up, David is actually there because his father, David's father, had sent David to take a care package to his other brothers who were soldiers. They were fighting. And so when David arrives with the care package from, uh, from home, uh, he finds out what's going on. The other members of the army began to say, oh yeah, Goliath, is." David heard Goliath do the taunt, and what's going on? So they tell David what's going on. About that time, Eliab sees David and says, yeah, what are, what are you doing here? You came here to see a massacre. You just came out here for the show. You're, you're not a soldier. You're just here to watch us get humiliated. His brother missed the point altogether, but David says to him, what have I done, you know, that you should treat me like this? And so David turns back to the rest of the Israeli's uh, army, and, and they begin to tell him again, yeah, and the king is going to enrich the man that does that, give him his daughter and all of this to the man that can kill or take out Goliath. David says, essentially, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? David says, what in the world? Why is everybody afraid this is the army of God he's taunting. Does he, he, look, does he not understand who he's messing with? That's what David says. But Israel hadn't gotten that. They had forgotten it, actually. And so David says, um, I guess the best way you could say what David said was, let me at him. I'll take him. I'll go fight him. David, a young, untrained military guy, uh, a shepherd, a uh, teenage boy, says, I'll I'll go after him. I'll take him. I'm not afraid of him. Uh, you know, sometimes um, what God's trying to help us to do is get our eyes off of the big thing and see that, that God is the big thing. And our giants always appear big. But David is unintimidated by 
by the giant. He says, let me see. I got thinking, I was working on a message, I don't know, 30 plus years ago. Uh, the church I served in, we had uh, every summer for vacation Bible school, we had, I don't know, probably 10, 15 buses that we ran through various areas to pick up uh, children. And we'd have several hundreds of children that would ride buses in every morning for vacation Bible school. And as staff members, we were all assigned a bus and a route. So we went and drove these routes every morning, picked up the kids, and then took them back home when it was all uh, said and done. And, um, and then we had an aide on the, the bus with us, okay? And so I'm, I remember my routing on that uh, first day. Uh, uh, the, the aide is driving the route, and I'm sitting in the front seat so I can learn the route, okay, and, and get it. So I'm watching, and we, we started putting these kids on the bus and you know you pull up to, and their parents are sending them out and they're getting on the bus and there's this little bitty guy that gets on the bus I mean he's probably maybe five years old and he has um, he gets on he sits across from me I'm sitting in the front seat he sits across on this seat and he's got these uh, coca-cola lens glasses that's the best you, you know what I'm talking about I mean they're big thick glasses and he's sitting there and um I mean, he's a nerd, little nerd kid. You'll understand why I'm not embarrassed to say that in just a minute. He's a little nerd kid. And all these other, nobody's interacting with him. All the other kids are getting along and everything. He's just sitting there all by himself. And, uh, you, you know, I don't have the gift of mercy, but it came on me at least. And that moment. I'm looking at this little guy, and he, he, these Coke bottle glasses, sitting there, and nobody will have anything to do with him. And so I strike up a conversation with him. Tell me your name. He won't respond to me. So I try other things, and I'm asking him questions and this sort of stuff. And finally, he responds. He stops. He gets up, and he's, he's this big. Now, I'm, I'm the size I am. He's this big. He walks across, and he looks at me, and he says, If you don't stop talking to me, I'm going to pop your eyeballs out. nerd <laughs> I stopped talking to him I sat down I said "Ooh, I'm no match for this little kid my point is he was not the least bit intimidated by me or my size but by the time it was over I was intimidated by him <laughs> David is a kid and Goliath is probably nine foot four inches or more and David says, that guy? Y'all are scared of that guy? And do you know what David later says to him? He says, I'm going to cut your head off. Kind of like saying, I'm going to pop your eyeballs out. <laughs> I'm going to, thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm going to cut your head off today. And I'm going to take your sword and all of that kind of stuff. He was not a bit intimidated. The trained guys were intimidated. You know, sometimes people, here's a lesson right off the bat for us. Sometimes we let our training keep us from obeying God in faith. Well, I've been trained. I know what to do. I know how to handle these things, and therefore. But not David. David arrives at the battlefront, checks on his brothers, checks in about what's going on, and he says, listen, I'm here uh, but since I'm here, I'll take him on if nobody else will take him on. And by the way, even Saul eventually agrees to let him do it. Well, David, you're, you're just a young boy, is what the king says. And David explains, he says, yeah, I am, but I've been in, I've been in situations with a bear and with a lion. They've taken my sheep, and he said, I just go kill them. And by the way, he gives credit to God for that. God has delivered me out of the paw of the bear and out of the paw of the lion. And he says, the same, the same God who's delivered me from those will deliver me, and he could have said, and you guys, from the giant. And so uh, Saul says, okay, uh, have at it. You know, all of us, all of us face giants. Um, in the course of our life, we're going to face some giants. Some of you are facing giants right now. I don't know what it is. But you're facing some giants in your life. And they may be health giants. They may be financial giants. They may be relational giants. 
It could be something of a vocational kind of giant. It might be an emotional giant. But whatever the giant is, it's real. And it is intimidating to you. And the devil will try to take you down with it. And that's why this story is so helpful to us. Because it's a story that's rich with practical lessons on faith and victory. It teaches us how to handle the giants of life that we face. And I want to show you, I want to begin by giving you two key observations. And I'm going to give you these two key observations because I believe these observations are essential to understand if you're going to get the lessons that God has for you from the story of David and Goliath. The first observation is this. Israel was controlled by fear. Now, I know it's not rocket science, but if you look at verses 24 and uh, verses um, 32, you see this expression of fear that, that in verse 24, they were afraid that, that uh, Goliath would do his thing and they would, uh, they would uh, back away in fear. And then in verse uh, 32, uh, David says to the king, hey, don't let, any, t- let no one's heart fail them because of fear. Don't be scared of this guy. Uh, we're going to take care of that. And essentially, David was saying, don't let your fear of the giant control you. And the fact is, we really need to be more concerned about the fear of God than the fear of the giants. And if you think about fear in our life, when it controls us, it controls us through our eyes, doesn't it? Uh, The army was looking. They were listening to the giant, Goliath. And I'll tell you something, Goliath was large, probably nine foot, four inches, something like that. That's a uh, what we're told by some of the, the scholars, probably that tall. He was, he was a large man, and he was a loud man. He, he was uh, brash and bold and intimidating in what he had to say. Come out here, and, I, you know, and even when uh, uh, David came out, he tried to uh, intimidate him through what he said. He was large, he was loud, and he was legendary. Saul even says, look, this guy's a trained fighting machine. This guy's been through battle after battle after battle. Have you ever noticed that that when we live by fear, our, our giants are large and they're loud and they take on a reputation. They develop a, a reputation in our hearts and minds, whether it's true or not. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about fear. Alice and I were talking last night, and uh, uh, there, are over, there are nearly 500 times in the Bible where we're told not to fear or don't fear in some, uh, in some way. But she said, did you know that there are, uh, in the Bible, 365 times where we are told, do not fear. Do not fear. One for every day of the year. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. There are a number of, of kinds of fear in the Bible. We ought to be aware of them. There's the fear of God. This is a good fear. It's a fear that should characterize our lives, and it should cause us to live for God. Um, R.T. Kendall uh, writes and says this. He says, the fear of God refers to our fear of him. Does this mean we should be afraid of God? His answer is partly yes. We preachers nowadays are, first, not very prone, he says, to talk about the fear of God. And second, if we do, we want to say to the people, but this, this does not mean we should be afraid of him. To which Kendall says, really? I think we should when fearing God is properly understood. He also states the age today that young people begin to to depart from the faith is around 16 years old. He says that's why very few young people brought up in the church these days remain there. Why? His answer is, because there's no fear of God in their lives and because we haven't talked about the fear of God. Ecclesiastes 12 puts it this way, the end of the matter, all, when all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon writes and says, at the end of all things, fear God because judgment is coming. The psalmist in Psalm 2 in verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In Deuteronomy, 
the scripture says, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children to do so. Dr. S. Hawkins has written, the the concept of the fear of the Lord is the single most important missing element in the church of our day. You know, it's only a matter of time, frankly, before all of us must make a choice, and that is whether to accept or reject the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a choice. The writer of Proverbs envisioned a time when people would call upon God, but adds, I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge and, listen, did not choose to fear the Lord. The fear of God is a choice. And that's the kind of fear we need to be aware of. The second kind of fear is the fear of man. So if the fear of God is a good kind of fear, the the fear of man is a bad kind of fear. It is the fear that characterized the army of God's people in this story that we're looking at. It's a kind of fear that is driven by our perception of other people, and it is the fear of their perception of us. The fear of man is the fear of what other people will say or might say. It is often a fear based in the appearance of others. This is the kind of fear that frequently characterizes us when we face our giants, and it traps us, and it controls us. The scripture says in Proverbs 29, 25, that the fear of man lays a snare, it's a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, if you understand that, you understand where Israel was. They were living under the fear of man. The fear of man was controlling them. What Goliath said, his intimidation, and uh, the fact that they had lost sight of God. And what had happened is the fear of man had produced a trap, and they were in Uh, they were caught in that snare. It'll do the same thing to you. When you look at the giants that you're facing, uh, friend, remember that you either see the giant or you see the God of the giants. And if you live in fear of the giant, it will trap you. If you live in fear of men and people and their opinions and their thoughts, it will trap you. The fear of man is a trap. It's set by the devil and it's set to keep you from doing what God commands. Pastor Grant Brewster wrote this. He said, in our COVID-19 world, the fear of what others think has been escalated to new heights and it's captured many in its snare. The fear of man manifests in so many different ways, causing its victims to succumb to lies that numb their hearts to the reality of God's very great and precious promises. He goes on to add, we're, we're at war. And because we're at war, we must not be taken control of by our fear of man the fear of man is a trap why it's a trap because it manifests in paralysis did for Israel didn't it it keeps us from moving forward it keeps us from dealing with the giant Um, and listen the giant will not go away just because you choose not to respond to it you know I just won't respond to it this this is what was going on with Israel Goliath kept coming out saying let's do this let's do that and Israel just they 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 refused. They were paralyzed uh, about going forward, and they just didn't respond. But the fear of man is also trapped because it manifests in compromise. Compromise sociology. Compromise theology. Theology, you know, the, the Scripture, it'll try to compromise. Uh, uh, the fear of man will try to get you to compromise what Scripture says and not speak the truth. The fear of man will try to get you to compromise your ecclesiology. We're going to see more and more of this in the years to come. Ecclesiology is about the church. And that is we're seeing it now, churches and denominations that are caving into what has been termed wokeness, wokeness in the church and these kinds of things. Fear of man, and that's where it all comes from. It comes from the cultural pressure on the church. And let me just say this while I'm I'm here. Uh, Let me just say this. The church must never be held hostage to the opinions of a lost culture. You get that? And when it is, that's when it begins to compromise. It'll compromise everything. It'll compromise its sociology. It'll compromise its theology. And it'll compromise its ecclesiology. The church of God, listen, that, 
That doesn't mean the church of God's goal is to pick a fight with a culture. That's not the case at all. We're to speak the truth in love. But you have to understand something. The church is not guided by the opinions of the culture. The church is guided and directed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God delivered to us. That's our guidebook. It's not even a preacher's opinion. And the fact is, you will compromise. If you're afraid of man, you will eventually compromise areas that, frankly, you can't compromise. It's why I think Jesus says, when the Son of Man shall return, will he find faith on earth? Yes, there will be a remnant. But will he find faith, strong faith on earth? I'm telling you, this is coming. We're already seeing it. Um, The fear of man is also a trap because it manifests in denial. You know, some people face their giants by just denying them, that deny that they really exist, uh, just denying that the giant doesn't exist, and, and, and acting as if, if they deny it, oh, no, no, that's not a giant. Yeah, if they just deny it, then it, it doesn't exist. But you and I all know the futility of denial, and sooner or later, the giant will reemerge. And I think uh, the fear of man manifests itself in the overestimation of things. It'll make you overestimate what, uh, uh, what other people think of you. By the way, I like what, what, something I read years ago. A guy said, when I was in my 20s, I worried about what everybody thought about me. Then I got into my 30s, and I didn't even care what they thought about me. He said, now here I am in my 50s, and I realized they hadn't been thinking about me at all. And there really is a lot of truth to that. But, but the fear of man will cause you to overestimate what other people think of you, how they see you. It'll cause you to overestimate the harm that people can do to you. It'll cause you to overestimate criticism. And by the way, the fear of man will always cause you to un, uh, uh, underestimate things too. Cause you to underestimate who God was. That's this story, with the exception of David, right? The army underestimated God, and God had given them already so many uh, uh, um, victories in battle. They'd already had lots of victories, but now suddenly one man is opposing them, and despite all that God had done and all the success that they had had, they forgot. They underestimated God. The giant will cause you to underestimate God. And so there is the fear of man. And then third, there's the fear of the devil. You know, Jesus even said, don't don't fear those who can destroy you in this life. Fear those who can destroy your soul in hell. Fear him is what Jesus said. There's the fear of the devil. And the devil is a fear broker, by the way. And this is about being aware of the spiritual warfare of your arch enemy and God's arch enemy. The devil wants to make you live in fear. It's one of his weapons. He wants you to live in fear of death. He wants you to, to live in fear of the future. He, he loves to, to take the normal fears of your life and exaggerate them. You know, a virus, a plane crash, a car accident, uh, crossing the street, whatever it is, he wants to create fear and anxiety in your life. I didn't say those things aren't real. I'm saying that's what he likes to do. He's a fear broker, and so he likes to take these things and he turns them into to giants uh, in your, your life. It's one of his great tools and weapons. Now, now listen, you don't need to live in fear of the devil. The devil has been defeated. He has been conquered. You don't need to live in fear of the devil. However, you should have a healthy respect for him. He's pretty good at what he does. And so uh, when I say you don't need to live in fear of him, that's true. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a love and of a sound mind, Paul writes. But you need to have a healthy respect of your enemy because the Bible says your enemy is like the giant. He's large and he's loud. He said, the Bible says that your adversary, the devil, roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone whom he may devour. That means you need to keep your antenna up. That means you don't have to live in fear, but you need to be alert because he's always on the move and he's always looking to take you down. He's, he's loud. He, he roars. Did you he roams about and he roars. I don't know if it's true, but I read this somewhere years ago that says that 
The reason that a, a lion will roar is to intimidate its prey. That it will, it will often, that, that you've heard them before. I assume you've been to a zoo or someplace and you've heard a lion roar. And it's an unusual sound. It is pretty intimidating. And maybe that's, well, that's what the picture is here, that the devil will roar to try to intimidate you and cause you to, to cower down when, in fact, he's already been defeated. He's legendary too, by the way. He's not just large. He has a host of demons. He, he's loud. He roars. But he's legendary too, just like Goliath was because Paul says in Ephesians 6 that he, is, he has been planning and plotting schemes. This is what he does. He's got a reputation for that. But friend, he is defeated. Christ defeated him on the cross. And by the way, he doesn't know everything because had he known what was going on, Paul writes and says in Corinthians that he, he would have never allowed Christ to be crucified if he had known what was going on. He thought, it was, he thought it was victory, it was his end. Now, it's also important that we understand that, that we do not find our victory over the devil by ourselves. All right? You don't have to be afraid of him. You don't have to live in fear of him. You do need to uh, have healthy respect of him and he is conquered, but by the way, he wasn't conquered in your strength. He was conquered by the work of Christ. But we have a path to victory. Revelations 12 and verse 11 says this, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even to death. Did you get that? It's the blood of the Lamb. That's where the victory is found. And the word of the testimony. What? When the, you know what the Bible calls the devil? It calls him the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren, that means he'll whisper things in your heart that are lies, like, why would God love you? You're not worth love, uh, being loved. He would whisper all kind of lies to us, and he wants us to believe those. He's the accuser of the brethren. Jesus didn't die for you. He died for somebody else, but he wouldn't die for you. Accuser of the brethren. He tells us that. Why? To deceive us, to, to, to destroy our effectiveness. With, so what does the Scripture say? We overcame by the blood of the Lamb on the cross, and the word of our testimony. Wait a minute, Satan. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait a minute. Have you heard my story? I once was lost. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Jesus Christ saved me. I called on him to be my Savior. I will tell people when I lead them to Christ, now you got a Bible? If they don't, I give them one, and I say, right down in the front of your Bible this day, that on such and such a date, blah, 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 whenever it was, I asked Jesus Christ to be my Savior. Why did I do that? Because I know Slewfoot's going to show up. At some point in time, they're going to blow it. They're going to do something that they, they realize, well, how did that happen? I thought I was past all of that kind of, and they're going to need to be reminded, wait a minute, wait a minute, because the devil's going to say, Psst, you're not a Christian. Psst, I, Jesus didn't die for you. How could Jesus love you? And that's when I say, I want you to take this and open up and you read it to the devil. Devil, listen to this. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And on such and such a date, blah, 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 I called on the Lord Jesus to be my Savior. Leave me, leave me alone in Jesus' name. So, all right. So don't be controlled by fear when you face your giants. Instead, take the approach that David took. And that's the second observation that I want you to see, and that is that David was controlled by faith. So Israel was controlled by fear. David was controlled by faith. Remember what he said, verse 37. He says, the Lord who delivered me in the past will deliver me once again. That's what he's saying uh, to the king. He's saying, that. it's okay. God's got this. Israel was controlled by fear because they lived by their eyes. David was controlled by faith. God, who delivered me in the past, will deliver me in the future. And rather than look and listen to Goliath's threats, David remembered God's prior work and he believed in God's future deliverance. You see, David's a model of faith, model of faith over fear. It was unrelated to his age, by the way. It was unrelated to his military training. David had been trained in the field of faith. And by the way, if you've got to take one or the other, take the field of faith. You see, it wasn't his age. 
I think that's the reason God will often, or Jesus said, let the little children come because of such is the kingdom of God. And unless you receive the kingdom like a child, you can't enter the kingdom. Why? Because you don't have to convince a, a child to trust God. They just say, okay, if that's what I need to do, that's what I'll do. Listen, David was still being led by the kind of faith that I've seen God work in the past. I trusted him then. I trust him now. I don't have the military training. Don't need the military training. God had delivered him. He knew that. And when no one else was around to help, God had been there. And that helps us answer the question. The question of why does God allow giants in your life? Why, why does God allow them in your life? Why does, sometimes God even brings them into your life. He doesn't just allow them. Sometimes God sends them into your life. Let me give you these things. <clears throat> First of all, God allows giants in your life to develop your faith. He's trying to take you to a new place with him. Many of your giants are a test that are designed to deepen and cultivate your faith. I mean, that's simply it. Many of your giants are are allowed by God or sent by God to, to deepen your faith, to grow you, to test you. Second, God allows giants in your life to demonstrate your faith. Verse 37 is a reminder of that. Your giants provide the means by which you show your faith to others. kind of goes back to what James said. Remember James said, uh, you say you have faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, my, the works that you see from me are a demonstration of the faith I have in God. So God will sometimes allow giants into your life, not only to develop your faith, but to demonstrate your faith to other people. And then third, God allows giants in your life in order to deliver a message about him. <coughs> verse 46 and 47 look there we didn't read this David is talking to the giant this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth here it is that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear. You understand that? Number three, God will allow giants in your life to deliver a message about him. David got it, didn't he? He said, this day, I'm going to strike you down. And then the whole world, the whole world, because it's a miraculous thing that happens, right? So the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. And, but then he goes a step further, and this assembly will know. He gets real specific. Not just the world out there will know, but the people in here will know. This assembly will know, he says. This army will know that it's not really by sword or spear that God delivers. It is by his power, not by might, not by power, not, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so God will allow giants in your life to deliver a message about him to others. Why did God want to deliver that message? Because he wanted Israel to know who he was. He wanted the world to know who he was. And he wanted them all to know that he was up to something big. He always is. By the way, the giants that you face are giants because they are bigger than your ability to manage them without God. Right? If you can manage it, you don't look at it as a giant. The reason things, and by the way, did you know, listen, this small things can become big giants in your life. The devil can take something small and it can become a giant in your life. The giant is anything that becomes too big for you to manage without God's help. That becomes a giant. And so it could be something relatively small in your life compared to somebody else's life that same that same battle in somebody else's life may be inconsequential but it might be because of where they are in their walk with Christ or what God has brought them through or their giant is a different giant so a giant 
is that anything that you are, you are compelled to trust God to defeat. So here's, what I, here's how I want to close now. I want to close by giving you, those are two key observations. And those observations are instrumental, I think, to you being able to get the lessons of this story. Now, what are some of the lessons? Well, there are lots of lessons, but I want to close by giving you four lessons about facing your giants, okay? Number one, remember who God is. <coughs> David tells of how God has brought past victory uh, in his past battles, and that had produced confidence. It had taught David that God is more powerful than any adversary that he faces, Faced a bear, faced lion, about the biggest enemy you could face if you're a shepherd. And God had delivered him from those things, delivered him as well as his sheep. And so what had happened is, I told you that David had been trained in the field of faith. Out there in that shepherd field, God had, tra- had trained him all by himself. God had trained him to trust me. David, trust me. I can deliver you from whatever. There's nothing you can face that I'm not bigger than. And so the lessons of facing your giants is remember who God is. It's so easy. Isn't it so easy to forget in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a difficulty? Isn't it amazing how easy we forget who God is? Oh, yeah, God. So remember who God is. Number two, know who you are. Look at verse 39. We didn't read this, but look at it. Well, look at verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, and he clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And so David put them off, or he took them off. You know what? Saul, with good intention, said, look, I'm going to put my armor on you. And they tell us that his armor probably itself weighed over 100 pounds, and he straps this, and Saul, we're told, was a, a, a tall man. Uh, and so he says, here, put this armor on, and this armor just swallows David whole. And it's heavy, and you got this young teenage shepherd boy, and he's, he's trying to figure out how do I navigate in these things. And, and frankly, finally, <laughs> he says, Mr. King, these don't fit me. These don't fit me. And he said, I can't go in these. Not only do they not fit me, I've not practiced in these. I, I, don't, I, can't, I can't use this. You know what it is? David knew who he was. Uh, Saul tried to put his armor on David, but it didn't fit. And David didn't try to wear another man's army, armor. You know, sometimes we think, well, if I had their armor, if I, we have armor. The Bible tells us what our armor is in Ephesians chapter 6. We all have an armor that fits us. But you've got to know who you are. David knew who he was. And it is important to face the giants in your life knowing how God has designed you. To know who you are. You're unique. God's designed you unique. God is still God, no matter what your design is compared to somebody else's design. If Saul had said he was going to go out and face uh, the giant and said, oh, I need to put my armor on, it would have been perfectly normal, right? And he would have gone out, wow, that's who he was. And it, the armor was designed for him, and he knew how to operate in it, but not David. And the same is true. Don't try to wear somebody else's armor. Wear the armor that God has designed for you. And then number three, not only know who you are, be who you are. Again, I like David's statement when he says, I cannot go with these. And it is a reminder to us, don't try to be something or someone that you are not. Be who you are, that's number two. I mean, know who you are, that's number two, so that you can, number three, be who you are. Um, David knew who he was. He knew who God was, and so David didn't try to be Saul, and he didn't try to become General Douglas MacArthur for God, right? He remained David, the shepherd boy, surrendered to God. Know who you are, 
And because you know who you are, then be who you are. And then fourth and last, use the abilities that God has given you. Look at verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch and his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistines. Use the abilities that God has given you. Being who you are also means using the abilities, the talents, and the gifts that God has created you with, the things that God has developed in you. Now, David had become gifted with a sling and rocks and stones. David didn't know how he might use those. He really most likely thought he used them to ward off attacks by wild animals when they came after his sheep, but he didn't know one day that it would be the means by which he would deliver his entire nation. But he had become adept at the sling and the stone, and he knew how to use those things. And at the right time, if you'll develop the gifts and allow God to develop the gifts and abilities and talents, and you know, there are spiritual gifts that you have, and there are physical talents that you have, but both of those come from God. Uh, our talents are what we sometimes refer to as common grace gifts. Everybody has talents and, and just by the way they're designed, but those are designed into you by God. And you become, here's, listen, you don't know when you become really powerful for God is when you know what your talents are, your gifts are, and you know what your spiritual gifts are, and where those intersect, you become very, very useful to God. Because all of it comes from God. Every good and perfect gift, uh, James says, comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness or shifting shadow. So use the gifts and abilities that you have. Uh, David went to battle with his staff, with his stones, with his pouch, and with his sling. And he came out victorious. Don't underestimate, people, don't underestimate the way God has designed and equipped you. You are unique, and you have, listen, you have everything you need to face the giants that come across your path. You have everything you need, whatever. So if today you're facing some giant. <clears throat> if God be for us, who can be against us? You're facing some kind of giant. How has God designed me? You, God, use me to face the giants. God... <clears throat> Let me learn from others. Let me learn and develop from others. All of that is good and fine. But God, most of all, let me be me, surrendered to you for your glory. And you see what happens. A little shepherd boy becomes a deliverer. But not only that, he becomes a hero and eventually becomes the king of the nation. A few centuries before Christ, Alexander the Great conquered almost all of what we would say was the then known world. And he had incredible military strength. He was clever. Uh, he was a diplomat of sorts. And there's a story told that one day that Alexander and just a small contingent of his soldiers had approached a, a strongly defended, high-walled city. And Alexander was standing outside the walls, and he raised his voice demanding for the king of that city to come. The king, approaching the battlements of his, this uh, pretty substantial fortress, uh, came to the top there and agreed to hear Alexander's demands. Alexander looked up to him and he said, you are to surrender to me immediately. And when he did, the, the king laughed. He said, why should I surrender to you? We have far more men than you do. We're, we've outnumbered you, and we're in this wall fortress. You're no threat to us. But Alexander was up to the answer and the challenge, and he says, well, allow me, king, to demonstrate why you should surrender. And then Alexander ordered his men to line up in single file and start marching. He marched them straight toward a sheer cliff that dropped hundreds of feet to rocks below. The king and his soldiers watched in shocked disbelief as one by one Alexander's soldiers marched without hesitation off the cliff to their own death. 
After about 10 soldiers had walked off that cliff in obedience to Alexander, Alexander ordered the rest of his men to stop, to return to his side. The story says that the king then, upon seeing that, took himself and his soldiers and surrendered on the spot to Alexander the Great. Well, similar to that is when David approached Goliath. If you look in verses 42 and 44, you know what Goliath did? Goliath laughed at him. He said, am I a dog that you would send a kid out here? I mean, is that what y'all think of me? He laughed, he made fun of him, and he told David, he said, this is not going to work out well for you. I'm going to destroy you. And he laughed. But we know how the story ends, don't we? And maybe this is where the line came from. He who laughs last, laughs best. We know in the end how this story works out. You know why that is? In your battles and your giants that you face, it is because the battle doesn't go to the strong. All through the scripture, we see God saying, I will fight for you. The battle is not yours, it is the Lord's. You see, we don't beat our giants because we're stronger. We beat them because God is stronger. And because we trust in our commander. And if our commander says, walk, we walk. We listen to him. And there we find victory. Are you facing giants today? Are you being controlled by fear or faith? Let's pray. Father, let us cultivate the kind of faith that David had. We've seen your hand in so many ways in our life and in our battles in the past, but we pray, Lord, that you will uh, renew our trust in you, our confidence. There are people listening to my voice today through all these different mediums in, in this live audience who they're fighting a giant right now, and their eyes have told them there's no hope. Father, would you refocus their eyes upon you? Give them faith to follow you into the battle. Help them to be wise and smart, but help them to be who you've created them to be, to use what you've entrusted to them to use and to know who you are and who they are. So, Father, I pray that for those who are fighting those battles, those giants, and for those who aren't, Lord, they're going to be at some point in time, either come out of one or getting ready to go into one, Father. Help us remember that the battle doesn't go to the strong. Father, you're bigger than all the battles and all the giants.